This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news, coming to you live via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. After the U.S. Supreme Court rejected Governor Tony Evers' redistricting map, the governor is now asking the state Supreme Court to look at more evidence that his maps are in fact legal. The federal court took issue with adding the adding of a seventh black majority district in Milwaukee. The Associated Press reports that the court was not convinced that the extra district was necessary to provide equal political opportunity. The ruling did say that the state Supreme Court was free to take additional evidence to further reconsider Evers' map. Evers is now asking for the court to accept further evidence until April 1st. Around 2,000 feet of sewage pipes were clogged in the city of Mauston over the weekend. The cause? Animal fat from a nearby Lando Lakes facility. An accident that occurred at the company's animal feed production facility on Saturday caused an unknown amount of animal fat to leak into the city's sewer system. Wisconsin State Journal reports that around 5,000 gallons of untreated wastewater had to be released while the company cleaned the sewage system, which was discharged into a ditch and sandbag before it could reach any waterways. Regardless, Lando Lakes have said that they intend to test local water to make sure no harm was done. The greasy mess took around three hours to remove. Two local projects aiming to help underserved communities in Madison received a hearty boost of federal funding today, the Capital Times reports. U.S. Representative Mark Pocan of Wisconsin joined the projects to announce the funds earlier today. Those funds come from a $1.5 trillion package to help communities, including the permanent men's homeless shelter here in Madison. The Center for Black Excellence and Culture will receive around $1 million to go toward its construction. And Central Hispano of Dane County will also get $200,000 to build a new facility. Pocan says that the projects were chosen by leaders in the community as the best candidates to receive funding. The Madison Ride to Drive bicycle event has been canceled due to short staffing, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The city's park division, which runs the event, says that they still have around 100 open positions in the department and they have no choice but to cancel the event. They say they hope to resume the event next year. And now on to today's top stories. As the spring election season rolls along, producer Nate Wegehout continues our foray into competitive races on the Dane County Board of Supervisors. District 20 of the Dane County Board of Supervisors sits in the northeast corner of the county containing the villages of Marshall and Morrisonville. The two candidates running for that district are incumbent Jeff Wigand and Scott Mahalik. Unlike the other challengers in the Dane County board races, Mahalik is no political newcomer. He had previously run unsuccessful races for a seat in the state assembly in both 2012 and 2016. 
Running as a Democrat, he lost both races to the Republican incumbent Joel Kleefish, husband of current candidate for governor Rebecca Kleefish. Currently, he works as an assembler at Generac Power Systems in Jefferson. Mahalik also sits on the Marshall Village board and helped to start the Marshall Farmers Market after the village's only grocery store closed down. Mahalik says that he first got into politics after Act 10 was passed in 2011 and says he is running because he does not like how incumbent Jeff Wygand is representing his district. I think Jeff, with his countywide mask mandate, when he had no power, no authority, I really want to stress is he had no power, no authority to overturn the mask mandate. He got people very fired up, very angry over this very divisive issue. Plus his, his stance on Resolution 353, which was to create a task force, uh, was in support of an Assembly Bill 886, which was to create a task force for missing and or murdered African-American women or girls. He was the only supervisor to vote against that. And I, I think because of these reasons, I think that he needs to be replaced. Wygand did not respond to multiple requests for comment about his campaign. Wygand was first elected to the seat in a special election last year in a writing campaign after the death of sitting supervisor Julie Schwellenbach. Having previously worked in the State Departments of Transportation and Administration, Wygand currently works as the Vice President of WPS Health Solutions in Monona, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Wygand has caused a stir since his election last year. Within the first month of serving on the board, he led a campaign to halt the indoor mask order in place in Dane County. He told WKOW at the time that he wanted the public to weigh in on the science behind wearing masks. Eventually, a public hearing was held, though the board voted not to end the mask mandate in a 30-4 vote. The Wisconsin State Journal reported that Wygand was the lead author on that resolution. Mahalik says that one of his biggest priorities in the county is broadband access. He says that, as a rural district, businesses cannot afford to not have good internet access. Mahalik says that he would also like the board to do more to address kids living in the rural areas of Dane County. I'd like to see for some of these uh, young kids, especially in the African-American and Hispanic-American community, uh, to see an expansion of bus service. Maybe the Madison Metro service would expand countywide. Some of the apprenticeship programs, the Building Trades Council apprenticeship programs, expand those to as where kids in high school can receive college credit, uh, perhaps for being in the Building Trades Councils and being in being an apprenticeship. Wangan, on the other hand, has recently spent his time on election integrity. Earlier this month, Wangan proposed several amendments to a new election security review committee. That committee was introduced to help stop the spread of misinformation around elections, specifically aiming to prevent another event like the January 6th insurrection. The amendments proposed by Wygand largely drew from talking points from the investigation of the 2020 presidential election by Michael Gableman, including a review of votes cast in nursing homes and reviewing the use of absentee drop boxes. All six amendments Wygand introduced were shot down by the board. Another issue that Wygand brought up at that meeting was the use of nonprofit money to help run elections. So I, I hope that we can all understand and appreciate that our elections can and should be run by our government, and they should not be run by people that have deep pockets. And when you have groups like Center for Tech and Civil Life that have deep pockets, I hope that we can all agree that our elections from a security perspective and a accuracy perspective and uh, mitigating outside influence 
they should be run by our governments and our governments should be free from outside influence, including uh, the influence of organizations that have deep pockets that might have uh, an interest in swaying an election one way or another. The use of grant money to help run the 2020 election has been repeatedly defended by federal judges. Mahalik says that, if elected, he would represent everyone in his district, no matter what political party they align with. I believe my current supervisor has been a rubber stamp for the Republican Party. Uh, He has introduced legislation that is word-for-word verbatim with what the Wisconsin GOP has done in the Wisconsin State Legislature. That's not the position that he's in. He's a Dane County Board supervisor, a nonpartisan position. I've introduced things like farmer's market, bolstering new home growth. These are things that are nonpartisan issues that I think both uh, Republicans, Democrats, etc., can all get behind. The 2022 spring election takes place on April 5th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. It's been 12 years since then-President Barack Obama signed the Affordable Care Act into law. Despite the program hitting record enrollment and approval ratings last year, eliminating and limiting the ACA continues to be a priority for Republican lawmakers across the country. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Wednesday marked the 12-year anniversary of the Affordable Care Act, which currently extends health insurance coverage to roughly 224,000 Wisconsinites. Eliminating the Affordable Care Act has been a years-long fight for Republican lawmakers in Washington, including Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, who told Breitbart it should be one of the GOP's priorities should it retake Congress and the White House. In a press conference Wednesday, Democratic U.S. Representative Gwen Moore said the ACA has been a critical lifeline for folks during the pandemic. And repealing the ACA, it would leave Wisconsin residents without the lifeline that they need for crucial medicine checkups and preventive The Center for American Progress estimates eliminating the ACA would strip coverage from some 28,000 children and 41,000 young adults in Wisconsin. Among other complaints, GOP lawmakers argue the program unfairly distributes the cost of health insurance among taxpayers. According to the White House, the Affordable Care Act has grown despite those critiques, topping out at a record 31 million Americans enrolled through the program last year. Dr. Thomas Hunt is a family physician and member of the Committee to Protect Health Care. He says eliminating the ACA would have disastrous consequences for his patients. Ending the ACA would mean my patients with cancer, diabetes, arthritis, and long-term medical complications from COVID-19 could lose health care because insurance corporations could once again deny coverage because of their pre-existing conditions. Lynn Carey is a health care advocate who, in 2004, was diagnosed with a life-threatening lung disease. As the illness gradually limited her ability to work, she faced losing her health insurance. She says with her pre-existing medical issues, finding a new plan would have been nearly impossible. But then the ACA was passed, and I could no longer be denied coverage or see unfair price gouging because of my condition. In May of 2015, after 11 years on oxygen, I received a life-saving double lung transplant. As enrollment has grown, so has support for the Affordable Care Act. A 2021 Kaiser Family Foundation poll found nearly 60% of respondents viewed the program favorably, a record high. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.17 p.m. 
and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Today, the Mendota Mental Health Institute broke ground on a new project to expand its juvenile treatment center. It's the start of a three-year, nearly $66 million project that's aimed at tripling the facility's patient capacity. WORT reporter Andy Barrow interviewed the director of the institute, Greg Van Rybrook, after the groundbreaking today. So to start with, can you tell me a little bit about who you are and the work that you're already doing at the Mendota Juvenile Treatment Center? So I'm the director of Mendota Mental Health Institute, and the Juvenile Treatment Center is part of the Mendota Mental Health Institute. It's a separate area that specializes in dealing with today uh, young um, adolescents or adolescent boys. Um, who are in the juvenile justice system, and then uh, in the future, it will be boys and girls um, uh, because of the juvenile treatment center expansion that we talked about today at the groundbreaking ceremony. Uh, How is the expansion and renovation plan um, set to change your work? Well, so it will increase the number of youth here from 29 to a total of 93 The big change will be um, 20 girl beds for girls and other meeting beds will be for boys. The other big change will be that we will be accessible statewide, meaning that counties and facilities in counties across the juvenile correctional system and the county systems will have access to Uh, mental health assessment and treatment for juveniles in their respective areas. What challenges Mm -hmm. do you anticipate uh, following the expansion? Yeah, anytime um, something this large uh, happens, there has to be an adjustment to the size um, of, of something from small to much, much larger. Um, fortunately for us, we developed a model of care for juveniles that is um, going to expand into the building itself. And the uh, challenges will be to um, ex- expand that program in a way that is useful to young people as they uh, ideally improve. The idea is that they are not doing well when they get here and that they will need uh, time to uh, develop a relationship and trust with staff, which is fairly easy for me to say to you, but is actually fairly difficult to do. Most of these youth will be coming from very, very trying, challenging circumstances and do not have a lot of experience with uh, relationships that of a positive sort, and they will need to slow down enough to trust staff, and what happens there are repetitive um, returning to the staff each time and developing a confidence that the staff are here and uh, to care for them. Um, We're not foolish about it in the sense that we 
we don't have a, a medication, a shot, or a special exercise that is going to make everything better magically. But um, persistence um, show, with treatment shows that we actually can improve behavior. And when I say the we, I mean it actually is the youth that can improve behavior. We've done some research studies in the current program that have demonstrated that youth who have been involved in our intensive treatment here actually um, have reduced their recidivism once released. And in a large study, we have gone from um, uh, a comparison group of up to 70% um, with recidivism, where we were in the 30%. So it's a fairly significant difference between two groups, one receiving intensive psychiatric and psychological intervention, and the other receiving the um, care as typical as a comparison group in corrections. So the, the challenge will be to keep that kind of program going, to improve it. I see. I wanted to return to the, um, the discussion of the recidivism rate, which, as you noted, uh, has been quite exceptional. So why do you think that is? What sets the Mendota Juvenile Treatment Center and the methods that you employ apart from uh, other institutions? A lot of people hope for a simple answer, like we do XYZ treatment. Uh, and I can't give a simple answer. Uh, at the core, um, we think it has a lot to do with the relationship that is developed between the uh, individual youth and the staff. Um, we see that as important because the foundation has to be based on trust. The youth have to have a sense that the staff actually are going to be um, fair and consistent with them. And then if that sense of fairness comes in, then the youth will trust enough to talk about their lives, which is a difficult thing because we aren't going to be talking about the good things because we need to be dealing with the trauma in their lives. A lot of the youth that um, we have experience with have abuse or neglect histories, uh, score high on the psychological testings and, and on the measures that have to do with history of repeated terrible things that have happened to them. We know from research that very severe cases actually delays the development of the brain and actually can slow it down. We know that when youth are so severely traumatized, they grow up with more mental health problems. And there's even a lot of literature now that shows there are physical problems as well, obesity and um, increased uh, problems of, of medical health, such as cancer, diabetes, and so forth. So we expect that this population is the kind of group that will be coming here. We are hopeful, but not naive. It's not like we have anything magic to offer. In a lot of ways, um, it is um, a lot of work, and a lot of work takes a team of people that understand what the goal is, and the goal is to help people who arguably need a lot of help. Most people who would come into our um, circumstance have been in a bad way throughout most of their life and have moved from being uh, acceptable in terms of behavior in the world into the juvenile world, which means they've crossed over into the criminal law with their behavior. And those are the youth that would be uh, the focus, uh, the target of attention uh, for a treatment program. The other interesting part about it, first started this program 25 
years ago, we looked around the country and the world for any models that worked with the most challenging, difficult, and aggressive kids, and we couldn't find any. And that was a, a bit um, surprising and demoralizing. But what it did do was help us realize that we needed to create our own program. Thus, the, the phrase here, necessity is the mother of invention, actually came to pass. So through um, trial and error and a lot of effort and a lot of um, failing and then failing again and then failing better, um, we started to develop a program that we call the decompression model of care. And that essentially is in, in very quick version, um, understanding that most of the time, youth who come to, uh, who, at least during this time, came, have been compressed and restricted by the uh, efforts of society to keep them safe, and they are actually going to need to be decompressed, if you can follow the image of um, a diver coming up from uh, deeper water. We don't do that quickly. You need to recompress in order to decompress so that the oxygen comes in gradually and the body reacts better. So using that figurative image, youth are decompressed from very horrible, constricted um, circumstances. And that decompression model, which is the gradual uh, improvement in the youth's behavior, becomes the basis for treatment. And the treatment isn't anything, uh, any one thing. Uh, it's fairly eclectic, uh, meaning there are the traditional therapies that are here, individual and family and group therapy, but we also have horticulture therapists here, art therapists, sensory motor therapists. Uh, we have a lot of rehabilitation uh, therapists here. We have speech and language and uh, anything else that has to do with treatment to include education. And the idea then in the environment is that the uh, young person will make decisions that are to his or her advantage in terms of having more and more freedom because they literally are going to have an opportunity to help themselves. So I've said before, the role of the state here is to help set the conditions, which is part of the build today, to help the staff help the youth help themselves. And that is a linear sort of a domino click that is a little bit easier to say than it is to do, but it can be done and we've demonstrated it empirically and we we'll hope to do it again uh, with a much larger population here in the future. This has been Andy Barrow reporting for WORT Madison. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We've got lots more stories coming up. A meeting in Mount Pleasant to discuss the Foxconn situation. Our newest feature, Fermenting Wart, looks at the liquid that inspired our name. And Radio Chipstone meets an artist who never gave up on embroidery. But first, we'll take a quick break, check in on some world headlines, and we'll be right back. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, 
here with Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. After being touted as the, quote, eighth wonder of the world by then-President Donald Trump in 2017, the Foxconn plant in Mount Pleasant has failed to live up to expectations five years later. Earlier this week, city officials held a meeting to update residents on the largely vacant site of the Foxconn plant, where concerned residents were able to publicly voice their opinions for the first time since 2019. To learn more about that meeting and recent developments, or lack thereof, WORT producer Nate Wagehout spoke with a local resident and activist in Mount Pleasant. I'm on the line with Kelly Gallagher with A Better Mount Pleasant, a watchdog group in the village of Mount Pleasant who are looking to hold the village accountable for the actions of Foxconn. Kelly, thank you so much for talking with me. Glad to be here. Thank you. So just to start things off here, everyone sort of knows about the debacle of Foxconn over in Mount Pleasant. But what has been happening over these past few months? Have there been any updates on anything? Well, um, there has not been a public information meeting for almost uh, three years, about two and a half years. And so this week at the request of the um, uh, uh County Board, um, there uh, there was a joint meeting between the uh, Village of Mount Pleasant and the Racine County Supervisors um, to provide what was billed as an update um, to the to the project. So uh, it was very highly anticipated, um, and we were really looking forward to um, hearing what it was that uh, we could expect or what was going on. Unfortunately, that is not exactly how the meeting turned out. And how exactly did that meeting turn out then? Well, it was it was less of an update and more of a kind of sad review of, uh, of work that had already been completed in 2017, 18, and 19, and uh, sort of... Uh, a story about how uh, the village in Racine County came close to securing the the Fisker uh, deal and the Intel deal, but uh, that it ultimately failed and both went to Ohio. Uh, there was really nothing new that we learned at all other than um, the consultants uh, who have been paid handsomely, some of them millions of dollars, are very optimistic about uh, the situation that we are in without any recognition that it's basically by almost unanimous opinion has been a complete failure. In the creation of this site, there was a lot of homes that were displaced, correct? What are those families doing now and what are, what do they think about this project now that uh, several years later nothing has been built or not much has well, been built, I guess I should say? Right. Well, about a hundred, a hundred residents, uh, property owners were were displaced um, by the by the project, um, and those represent not just you know neighborhood residential homes, but also generational family farms, uh, farms that had been in, uh, had been here for you know easily a hundred years. Uh, those folks did not give up their farms and their home and their homes in order for. Uh, for Mount Pleasant to hope uh, somewhat desperately that they can find some kind of business to take the place of uh, Foxconn, who has failed to live up to their promises. So there's a lot of um, 
there's a lot of anger about it. And I think that's mainly due because, um, and we saw this at the meeting um, on uh, Tuesday, is that there is no accountability to to bear. There's no one standing up and saying, look, we really thought this was going to be great. And yes, we bet big, but it just didn't work out. Um, they're still gaslighting us, um, still trying to to tell us that everything is fine, and really nobody believes it. Um, there's one family, uh, Jim and Kim Mahoney, that are still left in Area 1. Uh, the village decided uh, to vacate negotiations with them, even though they overpaid for many other properties that they thought were necessary. Somehow they didn't think that uh, Kim and Jim Mahoney's property was uh, – as important, and I believe it has something to do with the fact that uh, Kim was very instrumental in letting her neighbors know what their rights were. Um, those those uh, residents went on to drive harder bargains for for their properties, and I think that they're punishing Kim and Jim Mahoney, and that's um, it's wrong. It's really disappointing, but it's all too typical for Mount Pleasant. And so back to the meeting here. If I'm not yes. mistaken, Claude Lois was speaking at that meeting, a Foxconn project manager. And I know that he's been in some hot water in Mount Pleasant in recent months as well, if I'm not mistaken. Well, there have been uh, uh, some uh, a couple of articles written about uh, Claude's uh his agreement, his arrangement, and contract with with the village. He was the very first person really hired once the the project was announced. Um, Claude's uh, background was a short time with the Department of Revenue. He had been a uh, part-time mayor of Burlington, Wisconsin for a few years, but he's actually more well-known for being part of a development group in Illinois that bankrupted it and uh, shut down a bank by the feds for uh, fraud and conspiracy. So his resume is um, somewhat um, interesting, I guess I would say. Um, and his contract with the village, uh, he's getting set to get a pay increase to $200 an hour. Um, he's been paid about $25,000 a month um, on the nose uh, for the last two years, um, even though he's an hourly employee, and none of us can actually really figure out what Claude does with his time in order to make uh, two times what the state of Wisconsin governor makes. And then I know that there were also questions submitted for this meeting, and I know you weren't allowed to ask them. There, it w there wasn't public comment, but there was questions submitted that were read at this meeting, and I know a Better Mount Pleasant submitted some of those questions, correct? Yes, um, uh, a Better Mount Pleasant uh, submitted about five questions. Another resident uh, submitted, I think, at least four more. Um, the general uh, procedure for a meeting like this is if you submit your questions ahead of time by noon, the the day of the event, to the to the county clerk, then they're then they're read and and asked into the event. And that did not happen on Monday. There were no questions uh, from the public at all. A few questions from from county supervisors. Um, and that was very unfortunate. Uh, it did come up at the following county board meeting and under pressure by a few county supervisors, um, our questions were allowed to be read into the record. But of course, that was a meeting that took place an hour later after anyone who could have possibly answered them had already left the building. And Kelly, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with me? I think that the the thing that concerns us most is that um, in 2023, Foxconn uh, 
is required to start making $30 million payments to the village of Mount Pleasant to pay us back for the land acquisitions and the infrastructure. Um, they, they pay this for 24 years, um, so it's a, it's a lot of money. Um, should Foxconn default on making those payments, um, Mount Pleasant as a village is in very serious and very real um, danger of, of defaulting on the hundreds of millions of dollars that we have already borrowed. Um, and I don't think hoping that somebody else will come in and save us is has been or ever will be a sound economic development plan. I've been talking with Kelly Gallagher with A Better Mount Pleasant about the meeting that took place earlier this week about what the village plans to do with the Foxconn property. Kelly, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Thank you so much. Our new feature brings you behind the scenes of the beer brewing process. In this inaugural edition of Fermenting Wart, feature producer Colin Morgan zooms in on Will Wart the origin of the word, and its connection with your favorite community radio station. This is Fermenting Wort. I'm your host, Colin Morgan. So why was Wort named W-O-R-T, Wort? The call sign Wart, W-A-R-T, was taken. So Wort founders took a different route. In recognition of Wisconsin's beer brewing roots, they chose the call sign Wart, W-O-R-T. Let's take a look at exactly what this word means. In brewing terms, wort is where fermentation begins. The term refers to the sweet liquid produced in the brew house of a brewery. While most brewers know that the vast majority of flavor in their beer comes from the actions of yeast, Wort is where the artistry of beer making really comes into play. Brewing yeast take the sugars from the wort made in the brew house and turn them into alcohol, carbonation, and flavor. That is beer brewing in a nutshell. As long as a brewer does a decent job at making some sugar, yeast essentially does the rest. Brewing according to style, however, takes a bit of effort, science, and art. Take a look in any grocery store beer aisle, and hopefully you'll see a variety of styles. Dark, light, brown, red, IPA, white, Bach, the list goes on. It's a beautifully diverse beverage. Much of this diversity comes from different wort production methods. For example, an opaque, deeply complex Russian imperial stout comes from a thick, dark, layered wort. A lively, effervescent Witzbier might come from a spiced, gummy wheat wort. Both worts do the same job, but with subtle manipulation of ingredients and brewing methods, the brewer creates vastly different products. In order to make a brewer's wort, most breweries use barley. Much like wheat, barley is a species of grass that forms small seeds on the tip. You might have seen endless fields of them while driving in the countryside of Wisconsin. And while both barley and wheat have been used in brewing for millennia, their distinct properties differentiated them long ago. In fact, at the dawn of civilization in ancient Mesopotamia, the people of the Fertile Crescent learned to bake bread and brew beer with the grasses. 
Wheat, with its gummy gluten, made superior fluffy bread when baked. Barley, on the other hand, with its large store of starch and stout husk, was better suited for mashing and filtering in beer making. Beer, as well as bread, were actually diet staples, with both contributing nutrients and calories. The practice of brewing at home eventually became a necessary profession. These new professional brewers honed the craft, and each community developed its own unique style. Today, brewing quality barley is harvested in the spring and fall and sent to a maltster. The maltster, separate from a brewer, allows the barley to sprout to an extent. When the seeds sprout, the growing plant mobilizes the resources stored in the seed. This breaks down the complex microscopic structures in the seed and allows access to the starch stored within. This is called green malt. The seeds are then dried and sometimes roasted or kilned. Simply drying the malt gives a light golden straw color and a biscuit type aroma and flavor, while roasting or kilning contributes degrees of darker color ranging from light caramel to red to coffee to deep black. As the shades grow darker, more complex aroma and flavors develop. These flavorful malts are called specialty malts, and this is where a brewer's paint palette really comes from. Brewers use combinations of these colors and flavors of malt to make each beer's wort. Now most of these beers use a large portion of lightly dried malt to form a so-called base. Specialty malts are layered in with the base to create what's known as a brewer's grist. The grist is milled and steeped in temperature-controlled water. This breaks down the starch stored in malt, creating sugars. The sweet liquid is then allowed to drain off the spent husk, carrying with it the flavors and aromas of each type utilized by the brewer. The resulting liquid is wort. If fermented on its own, this sweet wort would make a passable beer. But thankfully, most brewers don't want a passable beer, and I don't either. Like a chef seasons each dish, a brewer seasons their wort. Most wort is seasoned with hops. More hops usually means more bitterness. A double IPA, for example, from three Floyds out of Munster, Indiana, is loaded with a mouth-puckering, bittering hop character. That might sound unappetizing, but the bitter in beer balances sweetness and contributes dryness. Without them, you'd be left with a cloying sweetness that's truly hard to finish. Today's brewers are rediscovering recipes that utilize traditional seasonings. Finnish satis, S-A-H-T-I, use fresh foraged juniper. Spruce pale ales substitute spruce tips for their aromatic hops. Gruet, an herb and spice-based mixture, traditionally used to flavor German and Belgian beers, is gaining some traction as well. In fact, there's never been a better time to be a beer drinker, as brewers are constantly experimenting with their worts. Wort made with respect to tradition or modern ingredients all can make fantastic beer. There's a story in every pint, and they all begin with wort. For fermenting wort, 
at Wirt News. I'm Colin Morgan. It's 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. commissioned by the Chazen Museum to commemorate its 50th anniversary is finally on display after a delay that lasted a couple of years. Now, we all know why, so don't make me say it again. The work, entitled Suspended Landscapes, Drawing with Thread, was created by artist Amanda McCaver and is well worth the wait. Currently hanging in Page Court, its ethereal expansiveness is inspired by the landscapes of Wisconsin, by textiles from the Helen Louise Allen Collection, by campus libraries, and the state Wisconsin State Herbarium. In this edition of Radio Chipstone, McCaver tells contributor Jennifer Fields how needles and thread continue to inspire her work. Just with the, ma- the materials of thread and the technique of embroidery there is so much to discover there's so much that I still haven't tried like I have a list of sort of things that I'm like well what if I did this and what if I did this and you know there it's constantly unfolding and something that's been interesting in the last year um like some people would like years ago would be like when are you gonna, when are you gonna get tired of embroidery <laughs> I'd be like well probably never uh <laughs> but uh, they'd be like why don't you try other materials and it really is in this year that I've sort of you know done that like I've made some pieces um my first permanent piece um with wire so shaping like that fine line of wire in space and making hundreds of units and with this piece I did have to think about how I would address the scale of the space through my technique so these are actually, these pieces that are hanging in page court are actually scans of the smaller pieces in the gallery downstairs in the Meyer Gallery. So they're actually digital prints that are printed on fabric. And then what I did is I burnt out these areas with a wood burning tool. So it was a challenge to think about, you know, how does this work stay mine, but how do I shift to create something monumental in this way so yeah I'm still finding challenges I think um, yeah the art artistic practice is like always unfolding it's always sort of like the more you do the more questions you have it's like going to a library and thinking you know everything and then like being like no there's this whole (laughs) there's a lot of knowledge in the world Um, and again things still to discover there's something though, Amanda, about the way you manipulate a line in space. Mm-hmm. Because when I think about line, or the first thing of, thought about line is usually pen to paper, pencil to paper, something to paper, something on a concrete surface it's going to. But there's, even though it's coming from you, there's a lack of DNA. Mm-hmm. You're not necessarily touching that line. Right. And it just seems like you're... Your DNA is all over this stuff. <laughs> t- I've touched every single part of this <laughs> multiple times. But but yeah, I, I think it's like that sensitivity of a line, like maybe the vulnerability of a line in space, like rather than being on a ground like paper or, I don't know, well, paper's the only thing that's coming to mind right now, but um, having that line sort of be free and maybe vulnerable from that, um, that ground is something that's quite interesting to me um, 
And then I'm like, well, why is that interesting? And I don't have an answer to that right now. <laughs> like, see, I just made a question for myself. Add it to the list. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so then as you, as you think about this work, you know what we haven't done? What I would like you to do is describe this work right. so I can see it through your eyes. So tell me, tell me what you see when you look at this work. Sure. Um, so when I walk into the space, I see floating monumental plants. Um, I see them in pastel tones that sometimes feel faded or out of focus. I see them moving and flowing with the air in the space, like a gentle breeze. I see um, sort of like a haze or a fog, like in the morning, um, if you look out on a field. Um, there's something about this that feels a little bit like a dream. Um, they're all hanging, the plants are all hanging upside down, so it's almost like they're falling from the sky. Um, so there's a cascade that's happening. And as you move around the work, you can see the pieces twist, um, and that allows you to see the flatness of the work. So they're, they're all flat and sort of gently moving in the space. And what I'd like, what I see when I look at the work um, is something that's like a blend of a document and a, and a dream or a fantasy. So there's a lot of this that's based in, you know, observation and herbarium samples, but then there is a fair bit of imagination and sort of liberties I took with the scale. Um, I often have to pay attention to where I am in space when I'm looking at the work because I, I, like I like to see it while I'm walking. Um, so I'm like very aware of the precious, <laughs> precious artworks in this space, but um, seeing the work moving and sort of dissolving into itself is something, um, it feels like it's here, but it's not here. This feels like I'm in a Wisconsin landscape. Good, good, yeah. So something that was really important to me was grounding this piece in place, right? Like how do I make a piece for the Chazen Museum that is about Wisconsin or has like a sort of a wink back to what's surrounding this place. So um, I really grounded some of my research in the prairie plants of Wisconsin and a lot of this imagery comes from herbarium specimens from the Wisconsin State Herbarium which also is a magical place. Um, so really I wanted to I wanted to make it a, about you know, the power of plants, the idea of prairie restoration, sort of thinking about, you know, prairies of the past, which are kind of an imagining, and prairies of the future, which is kind of like a hopeful thing for the future. Um, I wanted to bring that into the built environment. So contrasting the plants of Wisconsin with um, this like brutalist, very massive building. <laughs> It's very outside inside. Yeah, yeah, that's what I wanted to, to have that, that feeling of these organic botanicals um, from, you know, prairie spaces sort of invading or, you know, gently invading the, the space of the museum. And I, I liked that contrast between like the hardness of the architecture and the softness of these textile materials, the movement of these pieces contrasting with how still and sort of uh, static the spaces and at the same time the spaces were so beautiful like the warmth of the marble is definitely something that surprised me when I first came into the space um, you often think of like concrete when you think of brutalist buildings but this court has has a warmth to it as well it's very much winter spring 
very much, you know, this elemental sort of thing that, that if I walked out of here right now, I would expect it to be 60 degrees outside. Right, like what's happening. And that's actually something that I'm, I'm really happy about too, is that this piece um, installed in the space is going to see like the end of winter, the beginning of spring, summertime, and then August is like prime prairie season in Madison. So it's going to see that change in season. And I wonder about how the reading of the piece will change. Like right now you're saying like, there's quite a contrast between like the inside and the outside. Like what happens in springtime, you know, when this feels like a continuation of like the beautiful, and I've been in Wisconsin in May, it's so beautiful. Is that right? It's like, you know, people think it's just a bunch of farmland, no. but that's a beautiful drive. Yeah, it's a beautiful drive. It's beautiful even on campus. Like I'm so impressed by some of the green spaces on campus. Um, yeah, and so maybe this will feel like a continuation at that point of like the outside coming inside. Um, and I'm excited about those things, you know, the, the way that the work could possibly change. It's going to change with each person that comes to see it. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at six. Your reporter tonight was Andy Barrow. Special thanks to Jonah Chester of the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks also to feature contributor Jennifer Fields and a warm welcome to new feature contributor Colin Morgan. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Be sure to stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. You can get it wherever you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening, and good night, everybody. What is wart? Wart, W-O-R-T, correct. Listen.